today's programme as thousands gather for a second day to honour the memory of Ashling Murphy. What practical steps should be taken to combat violence against women? Will, vi- will restrictions on hospitality be reviewed next week? And should the government now provide free high-grade masks and antigen tests for all? Tag daily on the staffing crisis facing private nursing homes as they battle with a seven-fold increase in COVID outbreaks. And Senator Jared Crockwell on why Minister Simon Coveney has questions to answer on that champagne celebration in his department. Good afternoon and welcome to Saturday with Katie Hannan. My panel today, Colin Brophy, Minister for Overseas Development Aid and the Diaspora. Louise O'Reilly, Sinn Féin spokesperson on workers' rights, enterprise, trade and employment and skills. And Roisin Shortall, co-leader of the Social Democrats. You can text us on 51551. You can email saturday at rte.ie or tweet to at saturdayrte. Now, vigils are taking place across the country again today to remember the murdered schoolteacher Ashling Murphy. Thousands attended a vigil in Parky Creeve in Cork this morning and Mary Crilly, director of uh, the Cork Sexual Violence Centre, uh, spoke at that vigil and joins me on the line from Cork now. And I'm also, uh, I will also be joined by Alexandra Ryan, who's the founder and CEO of Goss.ie, who was at a sunrise walk in Ashling's memory in Dublin this morning. Uh, Mary, if I can bring you in first... There was a huge turnout at that vigil in Cork. Well, I know. I was definitely surprised. I was shocked by the amount. I thought it might be a couple of hundred people. And there was thousands there. And there were thousands of people who would have never attended a vigil, a protest or anything like that in their lifetime, who would never be aware that one in five women are victims of sexual violence in this country, who wouldn't have known that 244 women you know, have died since 1997. We didn't have... Um, a protest-type militant kind of speeches. It was just really being with people, just um, letting them grieve because that's where people are. They're stunned. And just, I know I'm only on for a short period now, but I would like to say I was part, part of the 1997 Task Force on Violence Against Women, which was chaired by Edson Fitzgerald. Um, I was the best one I was ever on. You know, I'm nearly 40 years in the centre now. Next year we'll uh, have our 40th celebrations. So information is there. Everything is written down what needs to be done. Yeah, I, you know, I was going to say... was done 20 years ago. Um, it, there just needs to be a big cultural change. I know you only have me on now to talk about the protest. And there's another one now in Cork at 2 o'clock. And I just think it's phenomenal. It's not a watershed. It's kind of a turning of the tide, which I really welcome. Yeah, Mayor, I was going to say, I was reading actually that that uh, report online yesterday, the, that, uh, that report from 1997. And it's really striking how it could have been written this week again. Totally, and it was really good and really encouraging back then because I remember going to Dublin the train seemed to take forever back then and people were really involved and people really took part and they kept the committee very tight and you know, you went up there and you worked and we really had great hope for changes. But I'm really part of the sector who believes we give people hope and we can make changes. They're not happening fast enough. But even, you know, I got goosebumps this morning looking around at the thousands of people who were there and who were saying in their own head, what can I do to help? And the men who were saying, I really didn't realise if I walked behind a woman that she thought I was a danger because, Mary, I wouldn't hurt anybody. And I said to them, but how is she to know? Because there are men behind you who are a danger. So it's a matter of just, like, don't take it personally and don't bring me on to the kind of not all men thing because that does my head in. Um, because nobody believes or would ever say that all men do it. But all men need to get involved 
in this culture change. Indeed, indeed. Mary, thank you. Th- thank you for that and okay, bringing us up to date. I, I want to go bring in Alexandra now. Alexandra, you were at uh, that sunrise walk organised mm. by Holly Carpenter this morning. What was the what was the feeling there and what kind of a profile of people were, were, uh, were up for that walk this morning? Yeah, so just like Mary, I think everyone was really surprised. Um, Holly had organised this over the last couple of days. I think we expected maybe under 100 people to show up and there was over 2,000 people and it was actually just so emotional and so moving. We were in silence for a lot of it at the beginning before we went on the walk and people brought candles. There was such a different mix of people there, which was amazing to see. There was young mothers with their babies. There was young girls walking with their parents. There was also groups of young men there together not being dragged by their girlfriends but genuinely groups of men groups of older men as well and the sadness in everyone's eyes was equal you know everyone just wanted better for Ashling and wants better for everyone in this country and it was really moving to actually see that there's so many people in this and feeling this and you know if, if us if we could all have just been there for her you know that's what the feeling was this morning we were waiting for the sunrise to come and it actually didn't really come it was a really grey morning and I, I said to Holly it was actually really fitting because you know Ashing's never going to see a sunrise again herself and we were all just really really feeling it earlier on and the things Mary is saying is saying I'm completely in agreement with when there's something very tragic like this, like a murder, you know, we we look to like violent past or like, why did it happen? How did it happen? We do have to look to the day-to-day casual sexism that goes on, not just in this country, but around the world, calling women sluts, shouting at women, wolf whistling at them. It's all these small things that lead to horrible incidents like this that lead to the, to the creation of monsters that do acts like they did. And I just really hope that this conversation is going to really, really hit home, not just with people being like, be careful, where you walk but talking to the men in their lives and I totally agree with Mary as well it's not that it's all men but it is always men and they have to stop feeling attacked when we say we're scared it's not that we're trying to be against men we're trying to get them to understand and there was a lot of young men earlier on I spoke to some of them at the vigil and they all admitted that they've never ever been scared like that out on a walk and I think it's really starting to hit them as well. I certainly hope so. Um, Alexandra, stay there. I just want to bring in, uh, bring this, uh, open this with the panel and uh, say to you, um, Colin Brophy, uh, Leo Varadkar, your party leader, was uh, online uh, talking about this yesterday and was talking about an epidemic, is the word to use, an epidemic of violence against women and saying, you know, the government can't do everything. You know, they can lead, but they don't, they can't do everything. But, you know, if this is an epidemic... Has there been, can you honestly hand on heart say that there has been the the required amount of energy and resources put towards uh, dealing with it, an epidemic? Well, I think what we clearly have to accept is that we haven't done enough um, and that we need to do more. And I think that's why I welcome what I know that Minister Helen McEntee will be doing in terms of the legislation that she's going to bring forward. I think it really is important. I think... When you look at the the real awfulness and the first two people making the contribution uh, there said some of the things that I was going to say because my my wife goes out jogging every single day. Uh, Yesterday we had a long conversation but I remember her telling me 25 years ago what she would go through on a jog. And I don't believe that most men have any understanding at all of the the type of life. I mean, there is a really, I think, telling point made, and it is the most telling point, that most men live their lives 
in a way that fear doesn't enter into it. And I, you, 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 you walk out the door of your house, you go for a walk. You don't think about the walk. You don't think about the path. You don't think about whatever. Maeve will ring me when she gets into a taxi to come home at night because she'll want to have someone on the phone. She won't just sit into a taxi. There's no man I know that would think about that as something to do, getting into a taxi. So there's a huge change that's actually necessary. It's not just legislation. It's, it's a mindset of how we live our lives and how, as men in particular, and it is all men, and if that upsets certain men listening, I'm really sorry for them, but it is all men because you can do in a thousand ways things that you don't realise the impact they're having on other people's lives and how things that you might think of in a completely uh, benign way actually impacts on what happens and therefore creates a tone and a place in society for people at the extreme end to do things which are so horrible and so unspeakable. But there's much, much more in the middle which uh, needs to be addressed. Yeah, I should just say, we just got an email before we came on air uh, directed uh, addressed to me saying, I'm just letting you know that your show will be recorded and should you interview or solicit negative comments about men, you will be personally, you will have to personally answer for it. And it goes on to tell me there's some meeting, uh, presumably an online meeting. We now have close to 200 people listening in and... Uh, uh, this is warning us not to, um, as I said, neg- solicit negative comments about men. Louise, uh, where to start with this? Um, I, I suppose, you know, I, I, there's a huge amount, and I don't want to use the word hand-wringing, but I mean, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, saying how exhausted they are. Yeah. Uh, women saying, you know, this has been going on for decades now and how exhausting it is just to actually have to live your life with this thing hanging around you and, and having to explain it over and How over again. How exhausting it is just to be a, a, a woman in just everyday normal life. Um, and it is. And uh, and the, the conversations that we're having now um, are really important. Um, it has been going on for decades. I, I remember my first Take Back the Night March. Uh, I was on it with my ma. Um, I, we were chanting no matter what we wear. Or where we go, yes means yes and no means no. Uh, I was eight, so that's 40 years ago. Um, and we've been at it since uh, my first experience. And I, I dug this out from my memory and, and from talking to, to friends. Uh, I was 11, I think, maybe 12. Um, and a, a grown man. Now, he seemed very old to me at the time. So he could have been any age, right? But I, I uh, walked past me and looked down. He said, you'll be ready for a bra soon. Big smile on his face and he walked away. And these are not the things you that remember we, that. Yeah, oh, of course. 30, I do. Oh, yeah. Six well, years yeah, later. Yeah, yeah, that would be yeah, 30, 36, 37 years. Later. Yeah, um, of course I do. Um, and when I talk to my daughter, uh, her experience has been the same. Um, when I talk to my mother, her experience was the same. When I talk to my friends. So uh, it's not all men. And, you know, to, to the lovely people, <clears> or the 200, if there is, if there's two of them, I'd be shocked to listen. Uh, with that view in mind, it's not all men, but it is. Uh, a problem and an issue that men need to tackle and I was very struck yesterday when we were at the vigil at the doll and I was privileged to, to get to a few <coughs> vigils yesterday my own area one in Rush organised by the wonderful Anya Downs and, 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 and one in Scaries and the one at the doll but, but Alva Smith 
said, women will continue to fight, but it's time for men of good faith to fight alongside us. So it's not just, it's not our fight anymore. This is a societal issue. And for politicians, we need to lead. We need to lead from the front. We need to provide that leadership. And I know, um, you know, we, we'll be using our private members time in Sinn Féin this week uh, to bring forward uh, a private members business motion in relation to gender based violence. And we will be looking for really practical steps because we have to start counting this. We, we need to have a database of gender based violence, because if we don't know what it is, what the quantity of this issue is, we're not going to be able to fix it. So we need to start that is with a huge really, issue. Yeah. really practical steps. Roisin, this is an issue. The, we, we, you know, we've been calling for the Savvy Report and for, you know, why has it been delayed for so long and why we don't have this data at our fingertips right now? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just to pick up on what others have said, in Kildare Street yesterday afternoon, I met an old school friend and she made that point to me. We were on the streets about these issues 40 years ago. Yeah. And in many ways, the situation has actually got worse since then. And obviously, the, the whole question of, of um, the Internet and porn and all of that plays into it as well. But, you know, it, it, we have to change the culture on this. And men and women have to work together on changing the culture. And it, we need to call out sexism where it's seen. And that does take some courage from men, but they have to start doing that because there is that laddish kind of culture that's there. And, you know, very often people don't have the courage to actually stand up and say, hang on, that's not uh, not appropriate or that's no way to speak about a, a woman. Um, so they have to come forward. They have to take some ownership of this as well. But I think fundamentally, you know, how do you change culture? You change it in the medium term and you change it in the longer term. And, you know, a starting point has to be that legislators attach importance to this issue. And that is where things like the Savvy Report comes in. I mean, it's 20 years ago since we had that first Savvy Report. Um, We've been promised a second one. And you need a strong evidence base to identify exactly what's happening, what's the scale of the thing. So that's one thing that the the Savvy Report has to, we need to see the second Savvy Report that's been promised. But then you look at what is happening in relation to, say, funding the services that are there to encourage women to come out. And And can can I just, I'll stop you there because I have Mary Mary McDermott uh, on the line. Mary is the CEO of Safe Ireland, which is a national network of refuges and support. Just exactly the point you were going to go to there, Roisin Shortall. Uh, Mary, good afternoon. Good afternoon and thank you for inviting us on to the programme. Um, Mary, the, Roisin's point there about, you know, the, the, the resources and the uh, focus on this on, at a political level. You, you're, you are involved, aren't you, on the, the drawing up of this new national strategy? Yes, yes. So, I mean, of course, listening to all the speakers, there's very little left to, that we can add to this other than to go directly to what the structural response has to be and indeed how we have to imagine responding to domestic, sexual and gender-based violence nationally. What do we do? And from the point of view of Safe Ireland, over the last two years, the lessons of COVID have taught us very clearly one thing. Community wants to respond. People have come to us again and again with all forms of generosity, of offering their homes, offering money, offering supplies for the emergency needs of women fleeing uh, domestic violence. So you can see that on the ground there is actually an understanding of the nature of this problem. 
if we're to respond to it at a national level, there is no question that we, what we need is somebody to take this issue, put it into a single location and a central ministry where policy and services are held together. For, for example, at the moment, policy and justice and services is, is in children. So there's a, dis, there's a fragmentation of how we respond to this. This is, this is just a matter of history. It's, it's not, you know, any planned, uh, you know, mismanagement of any kind. But what we're saying that into the future, we need a national strategy that actually sees this as a wholly integrated uh, response across uh, a number of platforms. So sexual violence and domestic violence, while they are distinguished for certain uh, matters, they are in fact the same patterns are there. And we need new language. We need careful, up-to-date language. And God knows we have the scholarship to support that. That will support uh, violence and systematic violence, whether you, whatever your sex, whatever your gender, whatever your sexuality. They, we need to think in modern terms. And when it, you say, regard- sorry, sorry, Mary, just yes. exactly what you're envisaging in terms of you know all of this being put put into the one political place, basically uh, 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 the, the one uh, department. Should there be a minister? Whose, whose only job is this, basically? There should be a minister for this or, or is there an appropriate department where you would see this sitting? Well, frankly, if we had if we had the power to do it, I would say yes, absolutely. Because from the point of view, of, it, the forty services all around the country, they are working working with a deeply under resourced system. They are exhausted. Staff are moving away from exhaustion. The increase in domestic violence, all these frontline services, and I, I noted it last night um, at the Dublin gathering. And I thought, really, there's a moment to to raise and. Uh, raise a candle, as it were, or have a moment also for the frontline service providers who come out day after day after day and respond to, to the crisis that presents to them across the country across the country in every county and there are blanks obviously there are places that need uh, further we, we support. Have, we have nine counties with no refuge yes, uh, services right, yeah. at all. Yeah. And you say we need 500 units. How many units do we have now Mary? So we need, well, in terms of the, the units fluctuate because they, they were lost by 25%, where we still had communal space, for example, during during the refu- uh, during COVID, and they had to be reduced. So there is uh, the, the Tooth Accommodation Review, we are hoping will be published in January, and we look forward to that. And that will identify exactly where and how these refuges need to be developed. But our caution here is that Again, we will make a mistake if we do not fully understand the nature of the problem, if we do not sit down and think about it. A skills-led community response is the answer to domestic violence as far as we are concerned. That is where you go, that every community understands the nature of what happened to Ashley. Yeah. That it's not a shock. They understand. They can speak to each other about it. They know who to go locally about it and they know where to go. So when the building of the just I won't uh, yeah. take any time, yeah. uh, it's just in terms of the building of refuges, the last thing we need is a burst of white elephants that actually turn out not to be proper domestic violence facilities that meet the needs on the ground and are future for future looking. Yeah, yeah. Let me put some of that to the minister here before me, Mary. You know, we have a dearth of services for, and we know what you know. Ashling the, the, was killed. We don't know. We don't know the circumstances yet. Or we won't know for maybe for some time. But we know that most women are killed by somebody they know, and most of those uh, murders happen in in their own in their own homes. Uh, so, resourcing services for domestic violence victims uh, surely, surely should be uh, at the top of the agenda here. Well, as I was saying earlier on, I I, I have 
tremendous trust and faith in Minister McEntee and the way she's going to approach this. I believe that the strategy that she'll be talking about and outlining has to look at all those things. I wouldn't disagree with anything that was just said there. I Do you think, think we should have a minister de- de- devoted to this? It's it's always a very difficult one. We, we, we have a constitution that limits the number of um, cabinet level ministers um, I'd prefer to be... We have a minister I, for g- higher education just, now, for yeah, instance, which was just okay. created in this government. Uh, I, uh, is this lower down the pecking order as an issue than a, a single uh, issue like that? What I would say to you, Katie, is this, that I would prefer to be guided in terms of listening to the people who are at the heart of it in this area and their advice on it and taking account of what they're saying. If it needs a minister, it needs a minister. If it needs to be centralised in a government department rather than having two departments having different aspects of responsibility. That should be a pretty basic one. That might be, absolutely. Well, I mean, these are the correct approaches to take and they're to be fair, they're coming from the work that's been done uh, in terms of making those recommendations. So um, I think whatever we need to do, is, and I, I think in Minister McEntee we'll have someone who will absolutely be focused on uh, making the, the, the absolute right decisions uh, in this area. Louise O'Reilly. It's not just a justice issue though um, and, and, and I do respect the Minister and, and, and the work that, uh, that she's engaged in in this area but it is also, uh, it's a health issue, it's also a workers' rights issue so for example... And an education issue. Absolutely, it is an education issue Katie and I think um, in the next two weeks so on, on Wednesday Sinn Féin are using our private members' time to bring forward a bill on uh, gender-based violence um, and also then the week after my own legislation on paid leave for victims and survivors of domestic abuse will be in front of the equality and Children's Committee as well so that's moving to the next stage they're positive things that we as legislators can do and I really hope that the government will support us on that in terms of pointing all of government in the one direction I think you know and what's one of the things in our PMB that we're calling for is that there would be the establishment of a domestic sexual and gender based violence policy and service implementation unit within I know it's a bit of a mouthful but you're talking about establishing a unit to deal specifically with gender based violence within the Department of Antishock so that the Department of Antishock knits together the strands. It's an education issue. It's a justice issue. It's a health issue. It's a housing issue in some instances. It's a workers' rights issue. And we need to have the whole of government pointing in the one direction on this. And I think the Department of the Taoiseach is the, the vehicle by which we will drive this. Is that the answer, Roisin Shortle, do you yeah, think, no, in terms of policy direction? No, Mary McDermott spoke about people who are providing services being exhausted. And they are because of the level of need that exists there and the underfunding of services. And they're also exhausted for by advocating and campaigning for decent funding for these services and that's what needs to happen and like this is something that needs a comprehensive response we've been promised this strategy now uh, on gender based violence uh, we were due to have it early this year I certainly hope it will be coming soon but it must encompass all of those areas in terms of the Savvy Report ensuring that there's adequate funding for services and like we currently have a third of the number of women's refuge places as recommended under the Istanbul uh, Convention. We also know that women's aid you know has seen an increase of 43% in the demand for their services. You look at what's happening in the justice area and so few women actually take cases uh, because they know that the 
the chances, chances of conviction of, are very, you know, getting very satisfaction. low. And like the other point I just make in relation to education, uh, the Social Democrats brought a private members uh, motion before the doll there before Christmas. And basically we were told that, you know, this wasn't a, a, an urgent issue uh, and it was put in the long finger by government. Like we need a proper modern uh, relationships and sex education programme which teaches young people, boys and girls, about the issue of consent, about having healthy relationships and about respect for everybody. And who supported you on that in in, in that that I think yeah. my recollection was that I think practically all of the, the, the opposition parties supported us. But, the but the government didn't regard it as, an, as a priority. It, shouldn't this be a cross-party uh, initiative now? Should, like, like the, you know, like for instance, you've got another chance now coming up this week of another private member's bill. Will, will Fine Gael be supporting that? Will government parties support that? I'm a real believer in as much collaboration as we can have within the all and as much collaboration as we can have on a cross-party basis. Uh, it also is important, I think, that if you're going to have that type of collaboration, that opposition parties work with government on its legislative agenda as well and not just try and knock it for the sake of knocking it. So there's a lot to be done on both sides. There is a business committee there that's there to try and build that cooperation in terms of what comes onto the Dáil agenda. And I think it is really important to try and reach as collaborative approach as we can. There's very little reason for politics within the issue. So I think it is important to be collaborative. But it's also, but that is a two-way street. That is a process which opposition parties need to also be willing to, to, to sit down and rather than just which unfortunately is what we've seen in recent time in the Dáil, rather than just opposing legislation that I would, and maybe you'd say, of course you would, you're a government minister, but I believe is very good legislation across a whole host of areas. Um, you know, And we've even seen it in recent times in the COVID area. So if we want to talk about genuinely about cooperation and we want to talk about collaboration, I think we need to have that working right across all political parties, government and opposition. I just asked you about the... the Members, private members' bill coming up next week from by Sinn Féin. Well, I, I can't respond as to what way the government is going to work on a private members' bill. That goes, as far as I know, into a business committee. It gets looked at by the business committee. It gets looked at by the government whips. But but that but idea, the, the central the, the idea of the that, the of the gathering the all of this yeah, in, into where, the Department uh, of and, Antisha. And, and, and I mean, people will look right across it because it is important to realise that there's a huge amount of work as we were talking about earlier in the programme, is being done by government at the moment on this as well. And there is, I think, uh, plenty of areas of scope and cooperation that can be worked okay. out between people. Mary McDermott. Oh, yes, um, I hope nobody's offended, but uh, we're kind of drifting, the conversation is drifting about, uh, you know, cross-party cooperation and really in the context of Ashling's death and indeed in the context of Anna Kriegel or Justine Valdez or or, um, or Anseg, uh, Terence Dorg, who was murdered uh, in the city. What we're really looking at is not an, a pattern of only a few decades. We're looking at uh, millennial decades. We're looking at a deep-seated pattern of, of a hierarchy that is embedded in our societies and I would say that it is very akin to the kinds of challenges we have to face in climate change and in fact there are overcrosses there, uh, quite considerable ones in how we face reality how do we dominate and until we actually sit down
down and really accept. We, 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 we sit down and say, look, some things we know, some things we don't know, some things we need to learn. We need to learn new language. We need to name it, stop squabbling among ourselves. And by that, I mean across male and females, because that distracting batting back and forward constantly erases and blocks our way forward. We need to sit down. We have an opportunity now with the new strategy. It's going to be the first one since we ratified Istanbul. And we looked, for example, the Australians have a very powerful uh, strategy, which is actually a high-level document that is a 13-year strategy. And then they bring about two or three-year action plans that roll out the specifics of it over time. The question then is, can that be centrally located within government, properly funded, and can it funnel straight down to an active, flexible, responsive, fully resourced, local skilled response? And we know in Safe Ireland, believe me, we've been doing this for two years flat out under extremely difficult uh, conditions in COVID, that this can be done. And we also know that the communities on the ground really, really want to respond. Men and women, young and old, people who are without resources, people who are with resources, they want to respond to this. They want to stop the murder, the rape, the assault, the coercion, the control and the exploitation of women and girls in the private world and in the public world. And we really believe, while that sounds very harsh perhaps, we believe in our hearts and souls that that can be done because that's why we're still standing there doing this work. It okay. can change. That, that strategy, when, when do you expect to see it, Mary? Well, the, we, the, the strategy is with, with the Minister at the moment and I agree with Colm and I think it was Roshan, I'm not sure, who said Minister McEntee and indeed uh, Minister O'Gorman are deeply committed to this issue. It's just a question of trying to find out what the best responses to it are. Our one caveat here is that the response to DSGBV, as we call it, cannot be reduced to a sort of crime and punishment approach. There's a whole, as Louise rightly said, there's an entire social policy stand that we need to take on it, uh, you know, that includes education, but is much wider than that. So, in terms of the strategy coming out, we're, we're hoping that there will be drafts. Further con- uh, consultations are online, and that process is, is underway and healthy. Okay. Okay. Mary um, McDermott, I'll, I'll leave you with the last word on that. I want to thank Alexandra and Mary as well for joining us on this today but they will take a break Saturday with Katie Hannan on RTE Radio 1 and you're welcome back now, the Taoiseach said last night that he thinks we are heading past the peak of infection. And uh, we know, of course, uh, all the data now showing us that Omicron is presenting as a milder illness by and large. In that, in those circumstances, uh, Colin Brophy, why are, do we still have an 8pm curfew uh, on uh, hospitality? Is it something that you think should be reviewed this coming week? Well, I'd like to see it reviewed. Uh, I'd like to see us move as soon as we can safely uh, to um, obviously reversing things like that. I think the Taoiseach was indicating that last night uh, in his interview as well. I think he was fairly clear. I mean, the answer as to why you have anything is to obviously for public health measures to reduce contacts. Do you uh, expect it to be be, uh, lifted next week? 
Because I know we were you know, talking about maybe it's, February. It's uh, at the start, but it does seem to move a little. It's been yeah. moving a bit faster now. It's funny. We were, we were just talking about this outside before we came in. And the problem is anything you say on COVID can change so rapidly from one day to the next because of circumstances. I think if things continue on the path we're on at this moment in time, in terms of the numbers, in terms of the hospitalisations, in terms of ICU, um, then I think hopefully we will be in a space. I don't want to prejudge what government will do, but hopefully we'll be a space at the end of the month where we can look at things like that. Do you think it will? We'll have to let it go until the end of the month before those decisions. Well, it's a couple of weeks, and I think we over the next week or so. But you know yourself that there are so many people out there who are hanging by a thread. I, I, uh, I, I absolutely do, and you know. That is why the government supports that are in place there to help people. But overwhelmingly, what we've tried to do as a government, I think what everybody has tried to do right across the country, whether they're in governments or opposition or politics or just public, is follow the health advice. And when that health advice comes through, and Roland Glynn was, I I think, also very clear on Clare Byrne uh, on this. He was saying we need another week's data. We need another week's data and then that would be implementation the following week. Can maybe Roshan ask you, are you concerned at all about what might happen now that we have decided to change all these rules around close contacts um, and uh, whether that might actually set set us back a little? Well, first of all, in relation to the opening up of hospitality and that, I would certainly expect that the government would be in a position to give very clear signals on that next week, assuming that the figures continue going in the right direction. And there's good news from the hospital figures there again is, today. There and is, yeah, figures, yeah, yeah. Un- undoubtedly. And the case numbers as well, even though, you know, that's a, a, a factor of the, the, the uh, capacity of capacity. the testing. But, but overall, I mean, th- there's there are grounds for for optimism there. Um, What I would say is that with the changes to the rules around isolation there that came in just just, uh, in the last couple of days, um, I think there is an issue there that there's a concern that people think, well, all of the restrictions are lifted. And, you know, we have to ensure that people continue doing the basics um, because, you know, there's been multiple variants uh, that have arisen over the last couple of years. But the manner in which the the virus is transmitted remains the same. And that is that it's airborne. So we have to keep a focus on good ventilation. We also need to ensure that people are using antigen tests regularly. And like, I think some of that was lost in the messaging around lifting of the isolation restrictions. It's not just we're finished with all of this, it's that people who have been a close contact need to continue doing the antigen tests over seven day period and also the strong recommendation is for high grade mask wearing and of course the issues then arise in relation to the to accessibility the of, of those and, and the and cost the of them. Yes. And neither come cheap and you know we had been promised subsidised antigen tests um, and we haven't seen those and it's a considerable expense if people are to do that, say a family that has had a close contact and they're to do antigen tests for seven days. And like we should all be using antigen tests frequently, but they have to be affordable for people. And the other thing, of course, is the high grade masks. And like, again, there's a lot of time lost on that. Uh, that point need, needs to be stressed, but also they're expensive. I was interested just to see in Italy, they have introduced a price cap on the high grade masks of and, 75 and, cents And I was each. interested to hear, and I only heard this yesterday from Paul Murphy, 
uh, that these are available to all of you guys, all, all the politicians right. yeah. as, as you enter Leinster House. That's right. And the idea that, you know, nurses, for example, have to have a battle to get an adequate supply of those. And they should, of course, be provided to any frontline workers uh, free of charge. Yeah. Uh, people in, in the health service, but also in education and in so many yeah, other I'll areas. I'll come back to you on this, uh, Public Brophy, transport. but just, yeah. Louise, so, you're trying to get uh, in. Yeah, earlier on this week, um, Dr Houlihan advised us that uh, the wearing of high-grade masks was going to be appropriate for the people who were now not covered by the isolation rules if they were returning to, to work or, or gone back out into society. He said that though, that they would be provided by the HSE. Within a matter of hours, the HSE then came out to clarify and said, actually, we're not going to be supplying them. Uh, so that leaves workers in a situation now where they've been told, you don't need to isolate, you may come to work, but we want you to be wearing a mask. So we need to tackle the issue around availability in the uh, first And of course, mandate, a mandate around saying they need these masks for, Absolutely, for retail yeah. workers. And I think, you know, it, the point won't be lost on people, Katie, that our employer in the Oireachtas provides us with those masks, OK? But a lot of employers aren't going to be in a situation they've been hammered they're not going to be in a situation where they can supply them so they need to be not just affordable but available and the problem that we have now is people are confused so they've been told go to work do antigen tests which are expensive get masks which are expensive if you're a low income worker how are you going to be able to manage that the government as as ever mixed messages and indeed forgetting about workers on low incomes I think that's very regrettable Colin Brophy and also I'm conscious that people if you have if you have an underlying condition yourself if you feel particularly vulnerable. Mm. You want to know that everybody around you now in your workplace or anywhere you might be is able to do the antigen test, yeah. is wearing the best yeah. possible mask. Mm. Is there any discussions uh, that you know of in government to supply these to people free of charge or at least heavily subsidised? Well, the, the very straight and quick answer to that is I'm not personally aware of it. I'm not in the Department of Health, so I wouldn't necessarily be aware of what uh, discussions take place uh, on a day-to-day basis. It's really important to remember that the government has, has on behalf of everybody, spent billions and billions and billions uh, in terms of COVID and all the various programmes and all the various no, supports no, that, that are there. Everyone, everyone's aware um, of that, but I'm saying this this yeah, now is we're at another crucial I, 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 point. I don't surely. think we've been found wanting in, in, in terms of, uh, in terms of wanting or adapting. Um, I you asked me how my particular I I, I can't answer that because I'm not. Is the simple well, answer? Well, I mean, you're, I just make the you know, point you're, you're about a wearing, senior politician. You're, you're, just, you're a minister of state, Colin Brophy, yeah. and I'm asking you if we're now asked to live with COVID, we're now we're now at the new phase of this pandemic, and are we asking people to foot the bill for that for 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 themselves, uh, people who who may very well ill afford it. No, well, I think I think the government has been very, very good at supporting everybody right across our country, our society, our communities, our families. Okay, you've said that. But with are, respect, I, you I, have I, said I, that already. I, I have, and I, 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 I'm I, asking I, I, you if you think I, this should I, this and, next and step and should I, now be I, taken. And I answered you honestly in terms of um, which you don't want to obviously accept that I don't know what the well, I'm asking what your the decision make, make, making is. I'm not 100 certain on whether or not you completely subsidise everything uh, to do with masks or antigen tests or how much you subsidise them or okay. whether you well, have price all major, caps. Sorry Colin, I think, can I just can say I just all say, major think, public health interventions yeah. were, were made free to people on the basis that there yeah. were public health can interventions. I, so that was the vaccines I, and that was PCR testing. Just, the, these are major public health interventions as well and I suppose okay. like can really you need to, what are you saying to a worker that can't can afford I, it no, today? Okay sorry I'm going to cut you because I want to bring in Thay Daly because we want to talk about nursing homes now because this obviously is another vulnerable cohort as we move into this next phase and we know that there were 56 outbreaks in nursing homes in the week uh, up to January the 8th and there was eight outbreaks in HSE Longstay units. Uh, So as I say, I'm joined now by Thaig Daly, the Chief Executive of Nursing Homes Ireland. Uh, Good afternoon, Thaig. 
Good afternoon, Katie. Yeah, can you give us a sense there, those 56 outbreaks, Ty, what are you seeing on the ground uh, in private nursing homes around the country? Are, are, are you seeing uh, patients with a milder form of, of disease now with Omicron? Yeah, look, thankfully, we're in a much, much better place than we have been right throughout this pandemic. Uh, but obviously, the increasing number of outbreaks, as you've outlined there at 56, is a concern. Um, you know, residents are not presenting as sick and there is, as you say, a, a milder profile of, of illness. I mean, that's down to the vaccine, obviously, but it's also down to the, I suppose, the resilience, the commitment and the compassion of, of the, the nurse-led gerontological expertise of nurses and, and carers in the nursing home sector. So, I mean, what, what we're seeing, obviously, is when you have such extraordinary high level levels of disease in the community, it impacts across all health and social care settings and nursing homes are, are no different. So it's very, very challenging for the staff at this point in time who are, who are very, very tired. Um, but we do need to continue to take all the measures and, and not to be in any way uh, complacent and, and maintain high vigilance over the next couple and of weeks. Speaking of staff, uh, Tyg, what sort of staffing issues are you dealing with in, in nursing homes now? Yeah, look, it, it is very challenging. I mean, we know that there was a workforce challenges in the, in the health service and indeed nursing homes and home care as well, right, you know, pre, pre-pandemic. Uh, but COVID, uh, you know, has really illuminated uh, the, the staffing challenges. We know at the moment that there's uh, probably about somewhere between 8 and 10% of nursing home staff who are out as a result of, of COVID. Uh, that's about 2,500 to 3,000 uh, 3, people. But the biggest challenge at the moment is finding staff um, and, and, you know, re- recruiting and retaining staff. And as we're, we're encouraged and at one level by the, the COVID nursing home expert panel that talks about pay parity because ultimately what we need to do is, is resource uh, because, you know, as I say, pre-COVID it was accepted and acknowledged that the sector was under-resourced and that there were work, workforce challenges. But, you know, COVID has, has really exacerbated those challenges. But, it, yeah, but um, isn't that the so issue, though, that government... your members, uh, Tyg, need to offer better pay and conditions to, to, to staff? Yeah, well, and that's the point I'm making is that like parity is entirely dependent on, on fair deal funding. I mean, fund, fundamentally here, nursing home care is, is, is state funded um, and nursing homes under the fair deal are actually price takers. Uh, so what we need to hear is, is a significant I- increase in, in fair deal fees, because when you look at the, uh, at the value for money review that was published by government uh, just before Christmas, it shows a differential of, you know, 62 percent between the average per resident per week fee in a, in a public nursing home as against a, a private or voluntary nursing homes. So there's a significant under-resourcing of the private and voluntary sector that has impact on staffing, a huge impact on staffing. And at such time as the resourcing is addressed, the sector will not be in a position to, to address that parity. So, But we are encouraged, to be and fair. Um, the, Taoiseach, the Taoiseach at, at Leaders' Questions uh, you know, last July said that you know, they were committed to working with the sector uh, and they'll find Nursing Homes Ireland very uh, willing and able to collaborate in, in terms of you know, creating and maintaining high-quality, sustainable services for older people well, I, into the future. I have a minister here who was rolling his eyes there a moment ago when you were talking about the... Well, I, I just think it's important to acknowledge the fact that the, the, the Tig and his members are, are private businesses and um, they are there to make a profit. There's nothing wrong with that. I was a business person for my entire life before I entered politics. And um, But, I mean, one of the things that's a well-known thing around business is that if you want to recruit staff and if you're having a difficulty is that you offer better terms and conditions and there's a balance there and just trying to 
to shift the whole thing to the state, I think is, I mean, maybe one of the things we should be looking at in a longer, more general way is, is how we provide this whole sexual care area. And uh, But at the end of the day, if, if you run a business and you're in it and you're making profits, and I don't think your members, to the best of my knowledge, are, are, are actually registered charities, your, your businesses, um, there's uh, a good deal of cooperation, I think, needs to be found between um, how uh, that is done, between maybe um, the the remuneration that's there for management and owners and the supports and rewards that's there for staff. Yeah, and if they improve, clearly, uh, staff uh, clear. will stay. I'm just looking at your survey, and this clear. is a survey you did, Ty, just just to give people an idea of what you're what you're dealing with there, yes. uh, over a, a, a thousand healthcare assistants and a hundred nurses uh, leaving uh, nursing homes in the past year, and if that's replicated across the sector, that would equate to four thousand healthcare assistants and twelve hundred nurses. That is uh, that's a that's a fairly stark uh, future you're facing into there. Absolutely. And as I said, you know, workforce challenges were here pre-COVID, but they've really been illuminated by COVID. In terms of the response of the minister, I mean, the minister needs to, uh, I suppose, infor- better inform himself in terms of oh, the, no, the, the I'm fully informed. Thank you. I don't, I don't need no, a lecture the, off you le, le, on le, being informed. No, I've, no, I've, I've, le- I've heard you uh, at Dáil Committees when I was a member of the Dáil Committee. I'm not I just, lecturing just at all. Just saying if, a fact, if I could, Katie, fact if I could, to okay, you. Thank you. If I could finish, Katie, maybe, and then I'm happy to... Yes, okay. The point I'm making is that the government's own report has acknowledged that the differential in funding under the fair deal is the key driver here. That's the point I'm making. Uh, as an organisation, as I said, we will work collaboratively with Minister Donnelly, with Minister Butler to address this, but we've got to address the underlying issue here, and the underlying issue here is resourcing. Okay. Um, but, you know, the, the, sec- the, the sector is, 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 is capable of delivering a high-quality service. Uh, we've been through a difficult period over the last while. In fact, the, the first element of, of, of funding cuts uh, was to nursing homes under the, the temporary assistance payment scheme. Um, so we, we do need to address it. Uh, and, you know, to be fair to government and to be fair to the minister, uh, they have accepted and acknowledged some of those challenges. Um, what we need to do now is crack on and start addressing them yeah. in a collaborative fashion in the best interest of, of older people. And going back to, to uh, COVID and living with COVID, uh, Tyke, you have an issue as well with antigen tests and uh, the supply of antigen tests for, for your members. Yeah, well, clearly, I suppose uh, antigen, you know, the, the the rules and the guidance and the uh, changing guidance over the last while is, is welcome. I mean, we have been using antigen right across the sector, right throughout COVID. In the last two weeks, working with the HSE, they have agreed, uh, you know, a, a relatively small supply to support with the guidelines and derogation. But uh, what we need now is, I suppose, is certainty and a consistency uh, of supply uh, of antigen tests because we are moving into a, a difficult period over the next couple so, of weeks. So what kind of a supply have you been given? Uh, the, each nursing home was given, uh, I think, 20 packs of five initially, and then there was a further 10 packs of five I- issued uh, this week. Uh, but as I say, you know, that's about 150 tests. Uh, sure, that, irrespective would, that would run out in a few days, surely, if you were doing. What, were you, what, what are they supposed to be for? Do you, uh, have you been told well, what yeah. you're using them for? Yes, initially it, it was to deal with the, the derogation of staff in terms of the small numbers of derogation. But as you've outlined on the programme earlier, there has been significant changes in the guidance over the last while. So there's going to be a greater usage of antigen tests now over the next number of weeks. And also, you know, if there's high incidence in the community, nursing homes may need to use them on all staff, for example, over a period, uh, again, to ensure the, the safety of both residents and staff. So what we need, and, and to be fair to the HSE, I think it is important to acknowledge that they have supplied some. What 
what we need now is to move into a regularity of supply okay. Uh, okay. and a consistency of supply uh, for, for uh, all, all, all healthcare facilities, including nursing homes over the next okay. while. Uh, Roisin. Yeah, I mean, this raises the whole issue of needing a long term strategy for living with COVID and ensuring that supply of those essential elements and testing and, and, and good quality masks is, is uh, guaranteed by government, but also that they're affordable. And like the idea of providing 150 antigen tests, like the PCR tests cost nearly 200 euro each. An antigen test cost price is probably less than a euro. And, you know, there is no excuse for not ensuring an adequate supply of affordable tests. For these uh, very uh, vulnerable uh, Absolutely. And I mean, another, another important point, like undoubtedly there is a big problem with the availability of staff. But what we need is minimum standards in relation to pay and conditions for people working in the private nursing home sector. That's really yeah. important. Yeah. And that's the main reason why they, they're finding they're it so difficult to get staff. Very quickly, Louise, I need to go to The government outsourced the care of older persons into the private sector and they are now reaping the rewards uh, such as they are of that. So I think, you know, that we do need to take a good, long, hard look at how older people are cared for. We need to look at resourcing properly, directly employed home help so that older people have a choice. If they want to remain in their homes, they should be allowed to do so. And we also need to look at the fact that home helps now are telling me that they cannot access high grade masks. So if we don't give the people the the tools they need, the resources they need to do their job, then we can hardly be surprised that they are leaving the healthcare sector and going to other sectors. There is one other important point about that. Very quickly. Unless there's an adequate supply of antigen tests, it will result in family members not being able to visit their loved ones. And that was a real problem over the first year in particular where, the, you know, yes. so many older people suffered isolation and families weren't those kind of eyes on how their, their older member was doing. And that's having that contact, maintaining that is really important. That's okay. why antigen tests should be free. OK, OK. I'm uh, going to take my last break there. Thank you for that title. Now, as speculation grows about Boris Johnson's survival as Prime Minister across the water following more revelations of partying in Downing Street during lockdown, here Foreign Affairs Minister Simon Coveney is facing more questions about what's been described as a moment of happiness in his own department during lockdown in June 2020. Um, Speaking on Brian Dobson yesterday, Colin Brophy, uh, Simon Coveney said that he learned of the gathering later on that evening, that evening of the gather that the, the gathering happened in June 2020, but he decided not to launch an investigation into the matter. Uh, is that good enough? Well, I think Simon made it quite clear that the reason there was no investigation into the matter was because he felt it had been public, that it was known, um, that it had been apologised for and he made uh, that decision at the time. He's also been very clear that he's willing to answer questions about this and if there's any questions to be asked by the Oireachtas Committee or whatever, that he's perfectly willing uh, to do that. I mean, that was his call, that was his decision and I think at the time he thought that was the, uh, the right decision. People are looking back on it now and going, was it the right decision? But he thought at the time that was the right decision. So that was the decision that that was was made. Um, I think probably at the context of the time, it probably was the right decision. Um, I know people are looking at it now in in, in a different, they're looking at it in the context of Downing Street stories and they're looking at it in all that uh, type of scenario. Um, But you make a judgment uh, call at the time. If my recollection is correct, the Secretary General apologised. He took down that picture. He recognised. 
was a, it was a response on Twitter uh, to one Twitter uh, user. Yeah. With so a, um, uh, I think yeah. So I mean, I I I, okay. I think at the time the minister made uh, the the response, and but obviously I'm, he's very willing and open to talk about it and uh, answer questions. And indeed, as, may uh, well be called before the Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, very quickly, Louise. Yeah, people are rightfully making comparisons between uh, the Tories in Britain and the, the antics of Fine Gael and this idea that there's one rule for them and another rule for everybody else I'm is sorry, rightfully is rightfully uh, making so, people very very angry. Just, so I do think but, that you know that the, the minister comment, Minister Coveney so. should. Please don't talk over me, Colin. Please don't talk over me. This was a photo taken of officials in the department. It was not a party political thing at all. To say the antics of Fine Gael is just can I tell you something now, Colin? People are very angry about this and rightfully so because that upstairs downstairs attitude isn't just not going to cut it okay. with people yeah. I just want to get That's I want to get Roshi in very quickly yeah, Roshi. obviously there's an onus on people in senior positions to lead by example uh that impromptu party was unfortunate. It shouldn't have happened. It was it a mistake. There's no doubt about that. Um, and, you know, I, I, what I, I don't know about launching an investigation. I mean, I think it was clear what happened. Uh, and the whole thing is, are you going to learn lessons from that? What action did the minister take? Did he send out a directive? He talks about learning lessons and putting in place new procedures. It'd be helpful if we heard what those were, okay. but it shouldn't have happened. And I think that should be the end of it. OK, OK, that's all we have time for. Um, I want to thank all of you for listening. I want to thank my guests. The producer today was Mary O'Hagan. Research was by Andrew Fleming. The broadcast coordinator was Elaine Condon and Kieran Dunn was on sound. Enjoy the rest of your weekend and stay tuned now for Saturday Sport with Joanne Cantwell and Greg Allen. 